Well, the title of tonight's sermon is Look Up, Child. Look Up, Child. There's been a relatively popular song on modern Christian radio with that title, Look Up, Child. It's a song by an artist named Lauren Daigle. I'm not endorsing all of her music. I'm just saying it is a song that has been fairly popular recently. And the sentiment is spot on. It's necessary. It's something we need to be reminded of. In fact, you could argue that when it comes to Christian living, that it's the whole key to success in Christian living is where is your gaze fixed? Where are you looking? Where is your focus? Where is your occupation? Where are you finding your direction? And it all comes back to it's either going to be leaning on your own understanding, looking at the horizontal plane, looking at yourself, or you're going to be looking to him, the author and finisher of your faith. And so where you're looking or where where your perspective is fixed is absolutely critical to living lives that would bring God glory. The walk of faith, a life of faith. If we want to kind of make it trans-dispensational, we would just call it a walk of faith or a life of faith. And so if you want to call it Christian living, of course, that's generally reference to church age. Christian living, those that have, are living in our current dispensation of grace or the church age. But the idea is any man or woman of faith who wants to have a life that is characterized by faith is going to only have that be true of them while they're looking up. And this is Psalm 5 is what we're going to look at tonight, but this is one of those psalms that reminds us of that principle. And we think about what is the best way to start your day off right. So our title, Look Up, Child, I'm suggesting in I think it's brought out by what David has to say in Psalm 5, that the best way for you to start your day is to look up first thing in the day. First thing upon getting up is to look upward. Fix your gaze on him. But there's many different options in terms of the best way to start your day off, right? Lots of different things that you've heard. Oftentimes, they're not focused on looking to the Lord, getting your gaze on the Lord, getting your mind on the Lord. They're focused on other things like finding the right alarm clock, that that's the best way to start your day off. I saw an article not long ago that these typical alarm clocks with sort of the loud, obnoxious noise, that that's apparently now, that's been found to be detrimental to your health. So what you need is a nice, soothing, gentle tone that can rouse you from sleep gradually because that's the kind of thing that could get your day off on the right foot. Others would say that to get your day started correctly, you'd have to hit the snooze button four or five different times. That would be the way to get your day started right. Or maybe some would say that the best way to start your day off right is to get out of bed on the right side. Sometimes you don't realize that the left side's the side to get out on. You get out on the right side, you get out on the left side. One, one side maybe sets you up for success and one doesn't. Now, I joke about that because people say getting out of bed on the right side of the bed. Well, obviously you know that that has very little to do with how your day is going to, do, going to go. Some people would suggest that the best way to start your day off right is to eat a nutritious breakfast. And that's perhaps something that's missing in my life because I ne- never eat breakfast. Some people believe that getting your day started right involves a liter of coffee. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things, of course, but the Bible makes it clear that going vertical with your thinking is the best way to start your day. Look up child. You see, how you start your morning can set the tone for 
your entire day. Now, there's no guarantee that starting right means finishing right or carrying that momentum through your entire day. But I will suggest that a lot of times not starting right can really set a negative tone for the, the whole day and make it very difficult to recover from that. Now, you're not recovering in your own strength. The way to recover, of course, is to change your focus, change your perspective, change what you're looking at, change what is occupying your thinking. But that can be difficult to do when you don't get that momentum going. Sometimes momentum is the thing that makes the Christian life or living for the Lord successful or easier. Sometimes when you have a little bit of momentum, it can carry you through some rough patches in the day or in life in general. Because that ball is rolling with a little bit of momentum. Now, if it's just barely moving on, moving along and a ball is rolling, the very first obstacle it hits, it just runs up against and comes to a dead stop. But you know, if that same ball is rolling with just a little bit of momentum, sometimes it'll take a little bit of a bounce in the air when it hits that obstacle, but what will happen? It'll carry across it and it'll keep, keep on moving. I think that's the thing that starting your day with a focus and a fixation on the Lord can help you to have that kind of momentum going into your day. Now, God cannot direct or guide your life apart from you looking at him. And so that's why it's so important that you start the day with that mindset is, how is the Lord going to direct in your moments, direct in your hours, in your minutes, the days of your life? How is he going to do that if you're not looking to him for direction? If, you're not, if you don't have your gaze fixed on him, how could he possibly lead you? And the answer is he can't. And so that's what David, I think, brings out in addition to a few other things we'll look at here. In Psalm chapter 5, this, he understood this principle. And he spoke about it as we start off with the psalm, and then he'll get into some other topics. So if you haven't turned there, let's turn there. Psalm chapter 5. Why don't we take a moment, let's just read the whole thing, and then Lord willing, we'll make our way through it. Some of you know that 12 verses is going to be a little bit of a challenge for me, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Psalm 5, verse 1, give ear to the words, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. That's where we get our title, Look Up, Child. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall on their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. So you're thinking even about the different themes that you caught there on the first reading. We'll dig into them a little bit deeper. But the first part of this is the importance of going vertical, which is why we started with that as our introduction in our, in our title for tonight's message. 
It's very important to go vertical with our thinking. See, David starts his day, at least this particular day, with prayer. He says, in the morning, and he repeats that twice in verse 3. So when you look down to verse 3, you say, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Now, he's not, he doesn't have a specific day in mind. So he's speaking about a, probably a general habit of coming to the Lord in prayer to start off his day in the morning. Now, is there something mechanical about that that makes that automatically a guarantee to spiritual success? And the answer is no, not directly, but there are many habits that we can form in our lives that are not mechanical in nature, but they're relational in nature. They have to do with our fellowship with God, our desire to include Him and live life with Him. And naturally, if you love somebody and we're having an intimate relationship with them, you might wake up in the morning next to your spouse and you might say what? Good morning. Now, if you had the opportunity to share that intimacy with that person, why wouldn't you start the day with speaking to them or greeting them? And that's what David is basically saying is, I have this love relationship with God. Remember that he's described as a man after God's own heart. And having a love relationship with God, the God of the universe, he wants to start his day by talking to God. Now, are are there other things he could do to start the day? Sure. Remember, nutritious breakfast, getting a little bit of exercise maybe, having the first pot of coffee, all those things. But his focus here in the psalm is, I'm going to start my day by talking to God to the Lord. And there's great benefit to starting your day this way. Your day is guaranteed to include challenges that you must face. So starting with a proper orientation is critical. You know what the day is going to bring. We live in a world where God promises that we're going to have trials. We're going to have hard things to deal with. We know that we're living in a spiritual battle where there's a battle for the souls of men. There's a battle for your thinking. We know that Satan never takes any days off, that the flesh is always powerful and seeking to distract us and take us away from our first love. We know that that's the case. And so how would we start the day on the right foot? We would do that by going to the Lord, talking to him, getting our mind focused on him so that we could be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That has to do with thinking first and foremost. It has to do with the spirit of dependence, but it has to do with a gaze being oriented on him instead of ourselves or the circumstances around us. And David, again, understands this. You see, the relentlessness of the spiritual battle that the believer is involved in can be frustrating. It can be exhausting. It can be overwhelming. It can be discouraging. And you see that here in verse 1 with this phrase, consider my meditation. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Now, consider my meditation is also translated, consider my groaning. Consider my sighing. Consider my lament are other ways that other English versions translate that phrase, consider my meditations. It's, it's, not a, it's not an idea of just consider what I have to say to you. Consider that I'm coming to you in a place of anguish, a place of frustration, a place of exhaustion and discouragement as I see the battle that I'm facing, as I see the adversary, as I'm discouraged by those around me who refuse to trust the Lord and are operating with a rebellious spirit that is attacking me, that is undermining me, that is being a negative influence on my life. Now, do, you, do we dwell on the attack as a key to Christian success? 
No. But we can be discouraged by the attack, and the response is to get your eyes on the Lord. Again, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Consider that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that God has blessed you beyond measure, that there's absolutely nothing that is impossible for him, that while I'm fixated on him and focused on him, he's going to bring joy and peace and contentment and purpose and direction to my life. Do you believe that? Now, while you're looking at the circumstances, while you're looking at the attack, while you're looking at the failures of yourself or others, is that going to be thing that's, the thing that's front and center in your thinking? No. That's why his mercies are renewed every day, and we need to start our day by getting our gaze focused on him, remembering who he is, remembering who we are to him, remembering how he's provided and undertaken for our spiritual success. Now, can that bring joy to our lives? And we're going to see that David says yes, as that's how he ends this psalm. You see, the language used highlights the adversity and the conflict the believer commonly faces while navigating through a dark, crooked, and perverse world. There's nothing that's different about the world that David was in compared to the world that we're in. Not fundamentally different. Details, sure. Fundamental difference, no. The enemy was under the attack then. The enemy is under the attack now. Satan. The flesh was powerful then. The flesh is powerful now. The world's influence was attractive then and it's attractive now. The world's thinking was permeating the lives of the Jewish believers in the nation of Israel then and it's permeating our thinking in our lives now. The believers then were becoming numb to sin They were becoming conditioned to sin. They were making excuses for their flesh. They were justifying their rebellion against God. And people do that today. Every single one of us is prone to that by nature. So the battle battle lines really haven't changed. The focus really hasn't changed. If anything, you could say we have a, a leg up in the sense that we have God's Spirit permanently living inside of us, empowering us, equipping us, enabling us to have victory over the law of sin and death, over our flesh. So victory is available. But victory was available for David too through the same means, but not with the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God. But the same means, get his eyes on the Lord. Trust the Lord. What did the Lord say? When you do that, then I will give you success. I will make your way prosperous. Not physically prosperous, though there was an element of that at times with the Mosaic Covenant, but I'll make your life blessed spiritually when you can get your eyes on me. So you hear this language when we talk about language of adversity and conflict, this frustration with the crooked and perverse world around him. You hear that with this phrase, give heed to the voice of my cry. And another way of saying that would be hear or give attention or listen to my cry for help. Some translations include the word help. Give heed or hear or listen to the voice of my cry for help is the idea that's being communicated there. Now, I'll ask you this. As you sit here tonight, maybe that's how you woke up this morning. Maybe you woke up with a spirit that said, I'm really discouraged by the attack that I'm facing, by the circumstances of life, by my own failures. Hopefully you went to the Lord with it. Hopefully you cried out with a voice that says, Lord, I need your help. I need you to undertake 
I can't do this on my own. Hopefully that was your response. David is going to show us that that is the only response to the circumstances that we face in life. And you see that here with this phrase, my king and my God. See, the only response is to bring it to the Lord. He said, I cry out for help, but who do I cry out for help? Crying out for help in and of itself is pointless apart from crying out or directing that appeal to the right object, to somebody who could actually do something about it. Somebody who could actually answer that prayer or could help you in the way that you need help. So he addresses it to my king and my God, for to you I will pray. You see, it starts with a recognition of the personal nature of your relationship, though. See how he describes this? My king and my God, that's who I cry out to for help. Not the king and the God, my king and my God. That's a dramatically different way of thinking. It's a personal relationship. The Christian does not speak into space. He speaks into the ear of the Lord. We're not just crying out in general, throwing it out into the air, hoping that somehow it percolates through the universe somehow. We're crying out to a God who hears, who's listening, who stoops down to take notice of you and I, even though it's beyond our capacity to imagine or fathom why he would love us so. But yet he does. So when we cry out, it's to an object, it's to, it's to a person. In this, in this instance, it's we're crying out directly to a personal God. Now he happens to be king too. And if you're his son and he's the king, what does that make you? A prince of heaven, royalty. And you've, you've been blessed with a royal standing. You've been blessed with royal treasures You've been given everything, every advantage that royalty would be given in the physical realm when it comes to the spiritual realm. The issue isn't that you don't have enough blessing. The issue is that as Christians, we forget to appropriate in faith by trusting God the blessings that are available to us. So then you see more language about bringing this to the Lord. He says in verse 2b, he says, to you, and other translations add the word alone, to you alone, I will pray. There's no other source that he's crying out to. He says, I will direct, insert my voice to you in verse 3. I will look up, is how he ends verse 3. And the unfortunate part of this is that a temporal or horizontal focus is your natural default. That's why you have to be reminded of this. That's why we come to church, we open God's word, we dig into it so we can be reminded of things that we naturally forget. See, we don't naturally bring things to the Lord. We forget to do that. And he says, why would you do that? I'm the only one who can help. When you have a need, he says, bring it to me. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. See, when you realize that and you trust that he's good all of the time and that he does care for you, then you would have the response that would say, if God loves me, cares for me, and is capable of addressing my need, then why wouldn't I bring it to him? I can't do this on my own. And that's what the whole message of the Bible from beginning to end is, man, apart from dependence on God providing, what he cannot provide for himself is a flop and a failure. That is the the essence of what's being taught through all of these different passages, all of the different characters, all of these different circumstances. You come to John 15, Jesus says the same thing in a slightly different way. Stay connected to me. Let me work in and through you. Be a channel or an instrument that I can work through. 
And without me, you can do nothing, though. So we have that communicated here as well as David is mindful and remembering that. See, it's a real problem when our default is to go horizontal. It's a real problem considering that any successful walk of faith involves keeping the Lord front and center. So if success is tied to going vertical, but we naturally go horizontal, that's something to be reminded about. That's something to be mindful about. That's something to be prayerful about. That's something to meditate about, right? To recognize this is a real problem. If it was a problem in David's life, I'll bet it's a problem in your life. I guarantee it's a problem in my life. What are you going to do? Are you going to go vertical with these things? Or are you going to stay stuck in the horizontal? And that's a lesson that, again, is taught over and over. Now, I do want to bring out, though, that a mechanical approach to this will not work. It will not work. You can't make yourself look up. You can try. As you trust him, as you learn more about him, as you learn to depend on him, you naturally will look up. As you include him, don't distance yourself from him. Draw nearer to him. Then you're naturally going to be giving things over to him. You're going to be trusting him with those things. As you're enjoying a relationship, enjoying intimacy, intimate fellowship with him, you're going to be reminded of his care and his compassion and his capability, how powerful he really is. As you're reminded of those things, you're going to be more prone to give things over to him, to trust him with these hard things that come up in life. So the question is, where are you going to focus your attention in the face of life's trials? You're going to have trials, but where are you going to put your focus? Where is your gaze going to be fixed in those times? So then we come to these next, this next section. I have it labeled, the horizontal plane brings separation. That's the problem with going horizontal. So we've looked at the benefit of going vertical, looking up, but what's the problem with going horizontal. It's the horizontal plane brings separation. Let's read these verses again, four through six. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So there's, of course, a number of different ways you could take this section. I think it's a direct contrast to the vertical mindset of verses 1 through 3. Now, it is true that God hates sin, but that's not the primary point here. This section serves as a contrast between the vertical mindset that is focused on, seeking after, and is directed by the Lord, and the horizontal mindset, which is not. So the horizontal mindset is not focused on the Lord. It's not seeking after the Lord. It's not being directed by the Lord. And here's how it is characterized. You see, all men are sinners and fall short, so including David, the one writing this, so that can't be the primary focus here, although it is a true principle that God is not delighted in any way by sinfulness. But if all men are sinners and fall short, and David is no exception to that, in fact, his failures are recorded in great detail, then what is he really getting at here? 
You see, what separates David from those described here is not his inherent righteousness, but it's his appropriation by faith of God's provision for righteousness. He's not saying, I'm incapable of these things. He has a track record of doing most of these things, including being a murderer, including being deceitful, including being accursed, accused of being bloodthirsty. God's judgment actually comes on him in the physical temporal realm as it relates to some of those decisions that he makes in his life. He has to suffer the consequences of those choices. So the contrast here isn't, from, isn't in terms of I am above all of this. The idea is that because I have my focus on the Lord and his righteousness, he is making me right and his righteousness is credited or imputed to me, that I can be associated with him relationally while the one who is operating in rejection or rebellion against him is separated from God because he's fixated on the horizontal realm, the horizontal plane instead of the vertical plane. The primary issue is not the sin, it's the separation from God that sin causes. This is a description of the one who is rejecting and rebelling against God. This is a description of the one who is unwilling to admit or acknowledge his sin. The individual positionally or practically who is opposing God cannot at the same time please him. And so you see that here. The person cannot experience, that person cannot experience fellowship with God either. So you, say, you see this phrase in verse 4b, nor shall evil dwell with you. You see verse 5, that man cannot stand in God's sight. The idea here is, again, focused primarily on the relationship, the fellowship with God. Are you associated with a heavenly, eternal mindset, or are you associated with a rebellious, earthly, horizontal mindset that rejects God, rebels against Him, and refuses to trust Him? So this describes that mentality of opposition to God itself. And he says that is a contrast to my present state of being where I'm looking up, where I'm directing my cares to you, where I'm praying and talking to you and involving you in my life, where I'm crying to you for help in a, in a place of dependence. See, the one who's operating independent from God, here's your description of what that looks like in a behavioral sense, but it all comes back to, though, the mindset behind it. And God's not going to honor that. That's not going to bring you closer to God. So then what does he say? He says, as opposed to the one who's operating in rebellion and rejection of God, not allowing his leading in his life, not imputing his righteousness to, to his account, that person who's seeking righteousness on their own, or they're just straight up seeking unrighteousness in rejection of God, either way, neither one of those pleases the Lord, the religious man that's trying to be righteous on the basis of his own human effort, that doesn't please God. The one who is just abandoning or rejecting God's standards of what is right altogether and operating in a place of congenital rebellion against God and continuing in that way where he's clearly standing for what is in opposition to God on a practical and positional level at times. That person is now contrasted here with David in verse 7. He says, but as for me, and his attitude, this section I have, lead me, O Lord. Instead of rebelling against God, defying God, opposing God. Instead, he says, lead me, O Lord. So he says, but as for me, there's our word of contrast, but 
I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. This is actually my favorite part of this psalm. I ended up putting the focus of the title on verse verse 3 there, but this is the highlight for me. You see, but as for me sets up a contrast between the mindset of those who refuse to acknowledge, trust, or be directed by God and David's thinking. It's not about one is a sinner and one's not a sinner. It's about who are you trusting? Who are you depending on? Who are you relying on? Have you come to the end of yourself where you see that apart from God providing for me, directing in my life, apart from a walk of faith, I could never please God? Or are you going about it excluding God and distancing yourself from God? Well, he says, I've I've chosen to draw nearer to God. That's the idea here. In contrast to the rebellion of the opposition, humility is central to David's posture here. And there's several phrases that are used to illustrate David's mentality, and there's a humility again to each of these. But he says this, but as for me, what's the first one? I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. But let's start with, I will come into your house. This phrase is used to describe approaching the Lord. Now, there's much more in view here than the literal tabernacle or or temple, As God's child, the believer can boldly approach the Lord from anywhere and at any time. That's the bigger principle here. I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, but I'll I'll stop by your house. I'll go to where you are. I'll come into a place of union and fellowship with you, a place of intimacy with you. Instead of distancing myself from you, I'll come to a place where I'm leaning into you, where I'm enjoying that closeness with you. I may bring to mind a verse from the New Testament, I hope it does, where you talk about having this bold approach to the Lord from anywhere and at any time. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, obtain mercy and find grace to help, what, in time of need. The exact same circumstance that we're talking about here. David is crying out to the Lord for help in a place of need where he's frustrated where he's exhausted, where he's overwhelmed, where he's discouraged, where he's frustrated. He's bringing that to the Lord. He's saying, help me. Imagine the boldness in doing that. Imagine the boldness. Imagine the faith it must take to believe that you, as a flawed human being, that is sinful and by nature rebellious against God could come to the Lord in prayer that he would hear, that he would care, that he would answer. You see the confidence that the believer, the man of faith, the woman of faith has that it's wrapped up into, wrapped up into and inherent in that? That you would see that you could come to the sovereign God of the universe with your cares and concerns. And in addition to that, that you could expect him to care, that you could expect that he would help, and that you would believe that he has the power to help. We talked about that not long ago in one of our other psalms. What's wrapped up into that? But you can have that boldness, friends. It's extreme boldness, but you can have it. God does care. 
He's interested in you. He's listening to you. He wants to help you. But he's saying, I'm not going to make you have a positive volitional response where you'll turn to me for help. I'm not going to make you trust me with your problems. I'm not going to force you to give up on yourself, to give up on your human solutions to your problems. I'm not going to force you to quit trusting in other people to fix your problems. But I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to illuminate your thinking. I'm trying to convince you that I'm real, that I'm faithful, that I'm reliable, so that you would start doing that. But he doesn't make you do that. There's an intentional volitional action in seeking the Lord. But I will say this, the Lord cannot lead you apart from you seeking him. So we say, I come into your house. That's this idea of, I sought after the Lord. I had this boldness to approach him with my concern. Now, the question is, are you mentally stopping by the Lord's house? You can picture prayer. You can picture this fellowship and this intimacy with God however you want. But I hope you see the... There's some anthropomorphism 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 that's how you say it anthropomorphism two thinking about God in human terms but I hope you do that because that's how you can understand this you have friends you have family where you when you want to have some interaction with them you go and you stop by their house You pull into the drive and you knock on the door. True? Now, not many. Most people don't want you stopping by unannounced. But a few people in your life, they're like, okay, don't look here and here, but yeah, you can come in. But stop by. That's what relationships are all about. Are you going to stop by the Lord's house? It goes on, though. In the multitude of your mercy, we've got to keep moving. So I come into your house, but then in the multitude of your mercy. See, access to God is purely a result of his great love for you. That's why you have access to God. Another translation has, through the abundance of your steadfast love. I come into your house through the abundance or by means of the abundance of your steadfast love. Another version has, because of your unfailing love. That's how I can come into your house. So I come into your house because of your unfailing love for me. Do you you recognize that? Are you reminded of that? Are you encouraged by that? He then says, in fear of you, I will worship. And the idea there is, I will worship you with deepest awe. I will worship you with deepest awe. This idea of worship involves adoration. It involves deep love and respect. I will have deep love and respect for you. But as a result of what? Deepest awe. So as I see who God is, it should make me stand in awe of him. As I see how much he loves me, it should make me stand in awe of him. As I see his character and his attributes, as I see him working in my life, I should stand in awe. As I reflect on the things that he's done in the past, he's done historically, but he's done in my life, it should cause me to stand in awe of him. And as I have that awe for him, I should have a heart of gratitude. I should have a heart that's worshipful towards him. 
heart of worship. Where you could be looking at that from the perspective of, I have this adoration for the Lord, this deep love and respect. Okay, so having that awe and that worship for God, that deep love and respect, that posture, he then says, now lead me. So I draw, I draw near to the Lord. I come into your house. It's only because of his steadfast and unfailing love for me that that's possible. I have this sense of fear as this sense of awe, which is the definition of fear here. I have this respect and awe for God that is couched in terms of adoration for him. And as that's true, then I'm going to ask the Lord to lead and direct in my life. I'm going to see that. Why would I do it any other way? As I'm convinced of him and I go through that process, the only outcome that should occur is that I would say, now lead me, Lord. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because I would make a mess of my life otherwise. I can't do this without you. That's how this would all work. As I see all of these things in that sequence, then I'm going to have this reaction. And I have here, this is the natural consequence of mentally coming to the Lord with a sense of awe and adoration. This will be your desire if you see God that way. You see, when it comes to asking him to to lead and direct in your life, though, you have to do that again with a posture of humility. Now, remember, we're contrasting here this posture of opposition and rebellion that was characterized by verses 4 through 6 with this posture of humility that David is is saying is true about him right now in verses 7 and 8. You cannot lead yourself and be led at the same time. Only a humble spirit is capable of that perspective. Only the spirit that is saying, without him, I lose my way. Only the spirit that, like Psalm 23, 3 says, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake because that's the kind of God he is. I know that I won't go in the right direction. I won't lead myself into the right paths. I've tried that before and it didn't work out. Have you tried that? Are you trying that right now? You have a sense that I want my life to go right as it would please the Lord, but then even though you have that sense, you're trying to do it yourself? You're trying to direct it yourself? You're trying to produce it in your own life? You're trying to mechanically approach things? You're trying to pull up your bootstraps? Fix what's wrong with your life? Cast out the, cast out the darkness in your own life? Turn away from the sin in your own life? That's the problem with a false understanding of biblical repentance, just as an aside. A false view of it puts the focus on you, fixing your life, turning away from your sin, being sorry about your sin, committing to not doing that sin again. A proper understanding of of the word or the idea is to change your thinking. It's not about what you're turning from, it's about who are you turning to. It's about dependence on God to make those changes and undertake in your life. The rest of it is hopeless. And that's why so many people who believe that that's a part of first tense salvation, they have no assurance of their salvation. And the reason is because when they're honest, they look at their life and they say, I'm trying to implement these changes. I'm trying to eradicate this sin from my life, but it's not working. Oh, but genuine believers don't have that kind of sin in their lives. 
maybe I'm not a really a believer. Maybe I'm not really saved. And that's why those doctrines, they don't sound that different at first blush, but it's all the difference in the world. You see, God's leading is naturally characterized by his righteousness, and that's why David can say, lead me, and then he says, in your righteousness. He knows that's the way God will lead. The only way God's righteousness is ever present in your life is if God is leading. That's a fact. You're not going to produce God's righteousness through your own strength. You see, man naturally becomes conditioned to, tolerant of, excuses, justifies, and then embraces sin. That's what man naturally does. He doesn't follow in God's right paths. He doesn't lead himself in God's right paths. You see a progression over time as he becomes numb to sin, starts to justify the sin, then ultimately embraces the sin in his life, comes up with all kinds of excuses. Sometimes it's a poor me attitude that just says, well, you know, I'm just a screw-up saved by grace. I'm just a sinner. Everyone sins. True. And yes, you are a sinner saved by grace. God doesn't want to keep you in your sin. God hasn't made it impossible to have victory in the Christian life. He's made victory absolutely possible. You just have to get past yourself. You just have to get your gaze in the right place. You have to have the right power source producing that victory in your life. But too often, that frustration just causes us to justify, overlook. In too many cases, ultimately embrace that sin. And God's like, no, embrace me. Victory is available if you just trust me. Now, the next phrase is my favorite. I said this whole verse was, this whole section was my favorite, but this is my favorite part. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. That came from having a law and an awe of God and an adoration, a worshipful adoration, a spirit of deep love and respect for God. Now, what came from that is he said, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. But then he says, make your way straight before my face. And that's the second aspect of David's prayerful desire. First one was, lead me, O Lord. Second one is, make your way straight before my face. He talks about how that was possible leading up to that, by coming into your house, because of the multitude of your mercy, because of this awe and worship that I have for you. Then his two requests in the prayer are, lead me in your righteousness and make your way straight before me, before my face. So a way to paraphrase this would be, lead me and make it obvious. Lead me and make it obvious. An alternate translation says, make your way plain for me to follow. Make your way plain for me to follow. You see, if believers struggle with directness, meaning there's many things that are spoken to believers in God's word that are as clear as could possibly be. There's no wiggle room around them. There's no reason for misunderstanding. They're stated very clearly. And we struggle with those things. Well, certainly, subtlety is going to be problematic when we can't even work with what is direct and clear. So that's what I love about this. It it almost has this idea of, Lord, I can't do subtlety. Make, Make your way plain for me to follow. I want to be led by you. 
Now make it plain. Make it simple to this simpleton. Make it obvious. Make it obvious to me. Now is that your prayer? It's my prayer. Direct me in a way that I can't miss it. Give me your wisdom. Illuminate my thinking so that I can see what you're asking me to do, where you're directing me. I think this is a very human prayer here by David to say that. Make your way straight before my face. Make it obvious to me. Now we have the bleak alternative to that, though, in verses 9 and 10. Let's look at that. Verse 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. So in contrast to this right path, this straight direction that the Lord is going to, he's asking that the Lord would reveal to him. The alternative, though, is for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the middle of their transgression, in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Now I have this, the bleak alternative. This is the bleak alternative to a life that's directed by God. That's what he wants for every person on planet Earth. Certainly, the alternative, though, is bleak. And the issue, though, again, isn't the it isn't ultimately the sinfulness. You see that if you go down to the end of verse 10. So the last part of verse 10. The issue is, for they have rebelled against you. The issue is rejection and rebellion. That's the issue. See, rebellion against God is the opposite, opposite of a humble posture. This is a description of the thinking and behavior of those that are attacking David. This is what he's frustrated by. And their rebellion is characterized in several ways that you see in verse 9. There is no faithfulness in their mouth, meaning they don't speak truthfully. Their inward part is destruction, meaning their deepest desire is to destroy and hurt others. Their throat is an open tomb, meaning their talk or their speech is foul, like a rotting corpse. They flatter with their tongue, meaning they speak with false praise for selfish motives or with selfish motives. You see, this behavior is frustrating. It's exhausting. It's overwhelming. It's discouraging. It brings about the cry for help and the groaning, sighing, and lamenting that we read about at the start of this psalm. It's interesting that the primary frustration that David seems to be facing in his life, though, is phoniness. It's phony people. Look at between the, the way they're described in verses 4 through 6 and the way they're described here in verses 9 and 10. Look at how much of this has to do with phoniness. In verse 6, he calls them liars and deceivers. In verse 9, he calls them untruthful, foul speaking, and false flattery. A lot of that has to do with lies and deception and phoniness. Being false. There's other things mentioned too, but the overwhelming weight of it is actually on that kind of thing versus actions of attacking him in other ways. A lot of it has to do with words. And it reminds, it reminded me anyway, it reminds you of the phoniness, insincerity, judgmentalism, backstabbing, gossiping, self-righteousness that is all too often found even within our local churches. It's very common for somebody to face attack from within, from those closest to them, more often 
than they even face those kind of attacks from outside. The hardest trials you face in life are very often not the behavior of others that are outside of your close inner circles. You expect that from the world. You expect that from Satan. You expect selfishness there. The things that are most hard or most difficult for most Christians very often are within their own immediate families or their church family. And that's tragic. I can't speak to that. It doesn't tell us what David's talking about here. It wouldn't surprise me when you see that those other psalms were focused on what was happening with Absalom. It wouldn't surprise me if a lot of his frustration or what he's crying out for help involves people close to him. Now, I can't say that dogmatically, but just something to, something to consider. Now, David now asks for victory over them in the form of God's judgment. That's my summary of verse 10. He wants victory over that in the form of God's judgment. Now, just remember this in passing, that God's covenantal promises through Abraham and Moses are in view here. Now, to Abraham, he said, bless them that bless you and curse or judge those that curse you. That's his promise to Abraham. To Moses, and, and, to Moses under the Mosaic covenant, we have obey and be blessed and disobey and be disciplined. And so there's that view in place as you're going through some of this in, a, in the context of the nation of Israel and even David's mindset in there. That is a little bit subtle and it's a little bit of a, a nuance. The, the biggest issue with rejecting and rebelling and opposing God, it's not even God's judgment so much that al- though ultimately if somebody positionally never puts their faith in Christ, they're going to face that judgment and they're going to be separated from him for all of eternity. But if we're talking not about eternity, we're talking about in time, the greatest judgment is that they're spending life apart from God. They have the opportunity through dependence on him and trusting in him they have the opportunity to live life with God in a personal, intimate relationship with God. And they're missing out on that. That's a strong contrast to this very personal walk with the Lord that David is describing of himself in verses 7 and verse 8. Now we have the last two verses here. The joy of the Lord. But let all those who rejoice put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him with a shield. So there's obviously a theme here of the joy of the Lord. You see that in these verses. We have rejoice. We have shout for joy. We have be joyful in you. All in verse 11. See, in contrast to the judgment or discipline that those who are rebelling against God face? David talks about the joy of the Lord that the man of faith gets to enjoy. There is no lasting joy to be found in rebellion against God. That sort of speaks for itself. So what a contrast this makes. But there's all of the joy possible associated with living life with Him, responding to Him, trusting Him, you see, trusting or taking refuge in the Lord is the key to spiritual success. So it says, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. And another translation of that word trust in, that, in the Hebrew language is take refuge in. Now picture that. There's joy available to everybody who takes refuge in God. 
Maybe I've lost you along the way here tonight. Maybe just jot that down. There's joy available to anybody who will take refuge in their God. Pretty awesome. See, David understands that being led by the Lord starts with trusting the Lord. You're never going to take direction from somebody you don't trust. It starts with that. And that's why you see in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 too, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and then what? He will direct your path. It starts with trusting him first. Ends with him directing your paths. You see, joy is associated with God's provision and faithfulness. You have all these phrases here. You will defend them. Is that cause for joy? Yeah, it says, be joyful in you or in him, you could put. Be joyful in him. It says you will bless. You can insert them. You will bless them, the ones that are trusting in the Lord. And then it ends with this just amazing phrase. You will surround him with your shield of favor. In many translations, that word favor is translated love. You will surround him, who? The one who's trusting in his God. You will surround him with a shield of love. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? When you're discouraged, when you're fatigued, when you're under attack, when you're overwhelmed, when you're frustrated, when you're exhausted. See, joy is all about occupation and fellowship. God's word says that it's in his presence where, is where fullness of joy can be found. So we have look up, child. Are you discouraged by the fight tonight? Has a spiritual battle got you down? Are you frustrated by the persistent spiritual attack that you're under? Are you frustrated by being let down by the people closest to you or feeling like you're attacked by people who should be supporting you? What does the psalm say the solution to that is? Look up, allow him to lead you plainly, and find your joy again in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for our time that we could spend here together in your word. Thank you for your great, steadfast, and loyal love that never fails. Thank you that we have the opportunity to, instead of living a life that's in rebellion or opposition or rejection of you, we have an opportunity to live life in close intimacy with you. Pray that we wouldn't squander that. We would see that apart from learning to trust you and getting our eyes on you, crying out to you for help, involving you in our lives, fixing our gaze on you, looking upward, we're never going to experience your joy, your peace. We're never going to have contentment. We're never going to have rest. We're never going to have lives that are, have a purpose to them that is eternal. Pray that we would get our gaze back on you and keep it there. Pray that we wouldn't do that mechanically or through our own power, but we would just see that apart from you we can do nothing and that we would draw nearer to you and lean into you by leaning into your word and letting your word impact our thinking. Getting out of your way and letting your spirit make those changes in our thinking so that we could have that proper perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.